Well, hey, brothers, this is Didact, and this is a Domain Query Ask Didact Anything Day. A very warm welcome, as always, to all of my Podbean subscribers, all of my readers from the site, all of my Telegram channel uh, subscribers as well. If you have not subscribed to my Telegram channel, please make sure you do so. Telegram is a fantastic platform. I love using it. Um, I, it's a private invitation-only channel. You have to click on a link to get to it. You cannot find the Didactic Mind uh, channel just by looking through Telegram. You, it's, it's not going to happen. But um, this podcast, which is the first one in a very long time, uh, comes from the channel members themselves. It's an answer to a number of questions which I've received. And <clears throat> firstly, I want to start with a, a couple of apologies. It's never good to start with a couple of apologies, but... In this case, I think they are very, very warranted. Firstly, um, the reason why I've been so, well, I haven't done a podcast in two months is essentially because I've been stupidly busy. I mean, like ridiculously busy. And I've just been traveling, working, traveling some more, working some more, and um, had some personal stuff come up. Nothing bad. Don't get me wrong. It was nothing bad at all. It was the, the personal stuff is the reason why I was traveling. So uh, it was very enjoyable, a lot of fun, uh, but very stressful. And um, that leads to kind of the second reason why I haven't done a podcast in a while and why it's taken me so long to get around to answering these reader questions. Uh, and here I really do owe a profound apology to my readers. I'm very sorry about this. Um, I've just been sick for the last week. And you can hear it in my voice. Uh, you probably can hear it in my voice. I, I just, I sound like crap. Uh, the reason why is because I was in a, I was out of town for business uh, about a week ago. Well, exactly seven days ago, actually. And the night before, last Wednesday, I was at a client dinner, um, kind of chatting with people. And then I went out for a walk, and I'm not sure what happened in the meantime, but... I clearly caught something, which is, it's probably almost certainly strep throat of some kind. If it's strep throat, then it's a much milder version of strep throat than I've had before because um, I'm mostly coherent, <laughs> not quite, but mostly. But I've been drugged up to the gills on, you know, paracetamol and ibuprofen and trying to get to a doctor around here is stupidly hard. Uh, they don't do in-person appointments anymore. They do over-the-phone appointments, which is completely useless. So, uh, yeah, it's just been a torrid time. But again, uh, my profound apologies to uh, all of my listeners who've been waiting on this for a while, my readers, uh, to answer these questions, and my profound gratitude to those same readers and listeners as well for their patience and for, of course, sending over these questions, because I do enjoy doing this. I will try to make sure that the next time I do this, I respond a lot faster, but it, look, just it was unavoidable circumstances. I feel crappy about it, but it is what it is, right? Um, so, again, thank you very much for your questions and thank you for your patience. And if you want to support the site, uh, you know, I do all this stuff for free, pretty much. I uh, don't ask people to pay for my content. I don't ask people to pay for my work. But it would be nice to uh, get a bit of um, kind of support and appreciation back if you like what I do then please check out the links in the description box. Check out especially Surfshark, because Surfshark is a very, very useful VPN, extremely powerful, uh, extremely 
flexible. There's also Atlas VPN. Now of the two, my recommendation is Surfshark just because Surfshark is one of only a handful of VPN companies anywhere in the world that has passed a true no logs audit test. Now, you can argue with the objectivity of that test because I think the people who carried it out, uh, it was Deloitte. So, uh, you know, it is what it is, is what I'm going to say. Uh, Deloitte, uh, they're, not, they're not the worst people, but they're not, are they fully objective? I just, I don't know. But what I can say is that Surfshark has passed a, a no logs audit as has, I think, NordVPN and ExpressVPN. And those are like the only two other VPN providers that I know of, I could be wrong about Express, uh, which have passed the no logs audit tests. And that's very important because it gives you very high degree of assurance, again, keeping in mind Deloitte conducted the test, that these VPNs don't actually track you, that they do scrub your uh, data and histories after you're done using them. Uh, Atlas VPN is essentially a derivative of the company that manages NordVPN. So both Atlas and Surfshark are based in, uh, I think, Lithuania. And they're both excellent alternatives. Uh, if you want something just simple and streamlined, get Atlas VPN. It's got everything you need in a, in a VPN package. If you want something a bit more powerful with a lot of additional useful features, get Surfshark. Uh, of the two, I recommend Surfshark. I've used it. I think it's excellent. I think it's, um, I think it's really, really powerful. And it's got a very intuitive interface. You just you know, click a button and you're good to go. Uh, so onward and upward to the actual questions. Uh, we start with a question which dates us back like a month. And again, I'm, I'm really sorry it took so long to get to this. But this one is from longtime reader and friend of the site and um, Telegram subscriber as well, MK. And he says, uh, with a hearty guten tag from the salty liverwurst Reich, I humbly request your advice on the following. How does one get into the Warhammer 40k and Halo universes? I've only seen the Hell's Reach movie for 40k and nothing for Halo. However, I would like to at least know what various references mean. <clears throat> Okay, this is a complex question because you're talking to a guy who's a big fan of both universes and the surface response or the superficial response to that question would be, well, just play the games or you know, play the, uh, get involved with the lore of any kind. Uh, that's, but it's not that simple because that playing the games really only applies to Halo, whereas diving into the universe is much easier in Warhammer 40k. That sounds counterintuitive, it's actually not. With Halo, the saga centers around Master Chief and his kind of legend and lore in, in the overall overarching universe. And you're not going to get a sense of the place and the universe in, in, of, of Halo unless you play the actual games. So, for Halo, if you're interested in understanding Halo, then play the games. If you don't have the time, the money, the interest in first-person shooters to play Halo, Halo 2, Halo 3, Halo 4, don't play Halo 5 Guardians because it's shit. 
It's, I'm sorry, it's just terrible. And Halo Infinite. And Halo 3 ODST. And Halo Wars 1. And well, Halo Wars and then Halo Wars 2. Uh, it's like eight, nine different games spread out across everything. It's a lot of game. Oh yeah, no, I forgot. Halo Reach, uh, 10 games. So it's, it's like 10 games worth of material that you have to know and understand and get involved with. But that's really the only way you can truly understand the lore and the references, unfortunately, is to play the games. Now, I personally love the games. I think they're amazing. Um, you can get the entire Master Chief collection on Steam. That's six Halo games in one package, basically. Totally worth the cost. You can download it for PC and you can, of course, get the Master Chief Collection on Xbox as well. And the nice thing about Steam is you can use your Xbox, well, if you're using Windows, you can, which is the only way to play it, um, admittedly, you can use your Xbox controller if you have one, which I finally do now, which is great, uh, which is really cool, on your um, PC. It links with Bluetooth, so you can just run it straight through. And it's really, uh, you know, I... I need to get back into playing uh, Halo. I haven't played in a couple of months now, almost. Um, so I'm looking forward to ramping up my Xbox controller and uh, connecting it to my Windows uh, partition. It's the only reason I keep Windows is to play video games um, on, my, on, on my PC. But now that I have finally have my Xbox back and my TV back, um, I think I might shift that around a little bit and just you know, play Halo and all my video games only on the TV uh, or the Xbox, but we'll see. Uh, so that's the way you get into Halo. It's, it's quite straightforward, literally just play the games. Um, my recommendation would be to start with Halo Combat Evolved and then go through the, the three Master Chief games. <clears throat> then go back to Halo Reach if you really want the flavor of something different then play Halo 3 ODST, then play Halo 4. Um, and it's when you see the kind of contrasting gameplay mechanics and the, the characters that you realize just how deep and wide the lore of this universe is. Now the problem is here, there's a vast yawning gulf between uh, Halo 1 to 3 and Halo Reach and ODST. So that, that is, it's kind of like a self-contained universe. And the reason it's self-contained is because Bungie created those games. And Halo 4, which was the first 343 Industries uh, game in the Halo series. Now, Microsoft and 343 Industries made what was in retrospect a very stupid decision, in my opinion, to plug in all the gaps between what happened in Halo 3 and what happens in Halo 4 uh, with tie-ins and novels and spin-offs and all this other crap. And the biggest gap between the two is the lore and history of the Forerunners. And you'll find when you play Halo 4 that 343 Industries completely retconned the history of the Forerunners. And it's one of the biggest sins 343 could have possibly committed against the franchise canon and lore. And they did it using a novelization series, well, it's not novelization, an outright novel series by Greg Baer, uh, the, three Forerunner, the, the, the three novels of the Forerunner trilogy. 
Novels 1 and 2 are, in my opinion, largely unreadable. I can't figure out what the hell's going on in either of them. Novel 3, on the other hand, uh, Halo Silentium. So it's a Halo Cryptum, Halo Primordium, I think, and Halo Silentium. Halo Silentium is superb. I'm genuinely shocked at how good it is relative to the first two, which I'm just like, I, I can't visualize what's going on in my head because Greg Bear's descriptions are so weird. It's not the first time he's done this either with, with a, a, a universe or a story that is not his own. He did it with actually the Star Wars saga with, uh, um, I don't know, what was it called? The, the one where Obi-Wan and, and um, Luke's uh, Anakin find the planet of Zonama Seacult, and, uh, which uh, that's a whole, I'm not going to go into that, but um, basically uh, the Greg Bear novelization, oh, sorry, the Greg Bear novel series maps out a completely different course for the Forerunners. Now, it's fascinating. It's actually quite good. The story is quite good, but it fundamentally affects and changes and twists Halo lore in ways that I think, in retrospect, 343i should never have done and should never have messed around with things the way they did. But once you read those three books, if you can slog through the first two, the third one, I think, is very rewarding, then you will understand all of the canon pretty much up until Halo 4. Everything else, all of the other novels and tie-ins and spin-offs and comic books and this and that, they're not actually that useful because the lore is self-contained within the five Bungie games and Halo 4. And then Halo 5 Guardians and Halo Infinite, I mean, they kind of cancel each other out in terms of lore because Halo 5 Guardians was a big steaming turd dropped by 343i where they hired incompetent SJW writers to kind of monkey with the Halo universe. And they just, like the, the Act Man did a great review, um, which I included in uh, this week's Great Monday Deck Browser Buster, in which he talked about how bad the gameplay and the plot of Halo 5 Guardians are, and how Halo 5 Guardians takes a bunch of ideas that sprang out of Halo 4 and did absolutely nothing with them, just shut them down, cut them off, didn't revisit them again, and then changed around a bunch of things in the lore without any explanation whatsoever. And then Halo Infinite came along and had to undo all of that hacking and slashing and did it with an incomplete game. That's a fact. Halo 4, uh, sorry, Halo Infinite has, apparent, has massive technical debt issues, what's called technical debt. So it's not a complete game. Uh, so if you really are interested in Halo-type stuff, then play those games. Uh, if, you, if you're more interested in getting into the lore and seeing the continuity, start with Halo Reach, then go to Halo 1, 2, 3... Uh, actually, if you're interested... There, there are a couple of different alternatives. If you are interested in continuous lore and understanding everything as it fits together in sequence, Halo Reach, Halo 1, I mean, Combat Evolved, Halo Combat Evolved Anniversary, which is a lot of fun, 
Halo 2 Anniversary, Halo 3 ODST, Halo 3, Halo 4. And if you're interested in a different take on Halo, you know, strategy type gaming, then play Halo Wars 1, uh, and then Halo Wars 2, which I haven't, I haven't really played yet. Um, I'm way behind on my gaming. So that's Halo. The beautiful thing, if you move on to Warhammer 40k, the beautiful thing about WH40k is WH40k doesn't require you to become a tabletop gaming addict to get into the game, uh, to get into the universe. Because it's much, much, much more expansive and broad. And you can understand what's going on without just playing the games. The lore spans quite literally 40,000 years, more than 40,000 years. And the single best resource for getting into this stuff, I've found, is, is not actually the books or the movies or the, the, the games or the video games. Well, the video games are fun. But it's actually the Warhammer 40k wiki. Seriously. If you're interested in finding out what all the references mean, go look it up in the wiki because that's how I got into Warhammer 40k. I don't care about Warhammer fantasy, not, not interested. But Warhammer 40k, the wiki is so comprehensive and so well done and so detailed that you can just get lost for hours jumping in between various pages. And the beauty of Warhammer 40k lore is that it is so rich and dense and detailed and yet largely self-contained. Because you don't need to know a bunch of backstory to get into, you know, each of the various uh, Adeptus Astartes chapters. It's useful, but you don't have to know it. Um, the one defining moment in Warhammer 40k lore is, of course, the Horus Heresy. And that you have to know about. But you don't, you can get a very good understanding of it just by reading the wiki page because the wiki pages are actually really well written. I mean, seriously, they're really, really well written. Uh, they, they read like somebody has taken tremendous time and effort to really go through and provide all the details. The Halo, uh, wiki page is, wiki pages are nowhere near as good. The best wiki page I think I've ever seen of any fandom is the Warhammer 40k page. And there are actually two of them. There's Lexiconum and uh, Warhammer 40k Wiki. Um, I tend to go for Warhammer 40k Wiki just because it's the one I'm most familiar with, but Lexiconum is also very good. But if you read through the Horus Heresy, just go look up the Horus Heresy on the Wiki link and read through it, and you'll very quickly come to a very deep understanding of what's going on in the universe, because the Horus Heresy is fundamental to everything else in the Warhammer 40k universe. Uh, at least as, if, you're, if you're playing as, if you're interested in the, you know, the space marines and emperors and, and of mankind and all that stuff. And then there's all the stuff about the aliens and chaos and what have you. Um, if you're still interested beyond that, then get into the novels. I recommend the Caiaphas Kane novels, or the, well, the Space Wolves novels, they're, they're action-packed, but they're not actually very well written. Uh, but the Caiaphas Kane series is hysterical. I mean, seriously, it's like the best you can imagine. It's just absolutely hilarious. Um, there is also uh, 
a number of standalone novels which each form their own series. And these novels are really fun to read. It's not like, it's not as disjointed as the Halo novels are. The Halo novels have serious problems with them. The ones by Troy Denning are quite good. The ones by Karen Travis are like, okay, this is weird. Uh, the ones by Matt Forbeck are pretty decent. And then there's a, you know, there are other novels by other random authors where you're just like, what? Who, who wrote this? You know, why? Um, they read like crap. Uh, the one novelization, the, the, there are a couple of novelizations that take place and kind of plug gaps in between um, various games. So there's uh, Ghosts of Onyx, uh, which is decent, I would say. Um, the Fall of Reach, which I think I've read. Yeah, I've, I've definitely read Fall of Reach. Uh, Halo the Flood, the, or the, the Halo novelization, which I haven't read. Uh, and a couple of others, you know, some of these books are sitting on my bookshelf, which actually is in storage. So, But there are lots of novels that I've read in and around the Halo universe. I can say with a lot of confidence, um, the, the, the Warhammer 40k novels, particularly from the Black Library series, which cover the period of the Horus Heresy, are generally of a much higher standard. Uh, there are like 20 novels in the Black Library series. You're not going to find time to read them all, but check them out if you're interested. Uh, because the beauty of Warhammer 40k is there's something for everybody in there. There's, there's a faction or there's a, a plot point or something interesting in there for everyone. Um, if you like the Ultramarines, there's an Ultramarines trilogy. I think there are actually two. No, there's one. Ultra, okay, there, it's been a while. So I think there's one Ultramarines trilogy. There's, there are two, I think, Space Wolves trilogies. Um, there is an Imperial Fists trilogy. There's a Dark Angels trilogy. There's, uh, you know, on and on and on and on. I mean, it's the trilogies for like almost every one of the uh, first founding chapters. Uh, there are Inquisitor trilogies. There's there's one for Ibrahim uh, Gaunt. There's the, the Caiaphas Cain series is, as I said, hilarious. I highly recommend that. So there's there's lots of different ways to get into the lore in Warhammer 40k. The one event you have to study is the Horus Heresy, and the best way to do that is the wiki. That's, that's my recommendation. Uh, also, so second question. Uh, from MK again. <clears throat> this is from the Telegram chat. Uh, this is from a, a, a post that I put in, and uh, all, most of the rest of the questions are from, from this post. Uh, question. How badly screwed are your Western Europe's industries? Will they revert to the Stone Age as predicted by Martyanov or just recede a little bit in the, pa uh, in the parts that won't join Russia's orbit? Uh, why did I read his pants? I don't know. Um, the short answer is they're boned. They're absolutely boned. We're already seeing deindustrialization taking place in Germany and in the rest of Europe, and it's going to accelerate. There's, there's no stopping it. Energy costs in Europe are spiking, and none of the Europeans have any plans whatsoever to address these problems. The only answer to the gap between energy production and consumption right now in Europe is nuclear. And the Green Lobby in Europe is ferociously against nuclear power. Uh, it's the only possible method to plug the generation gap between uh, particularly what European industries need and what European power producers actually generate. But worse than that is the issue of heating, blue fuel. 
So natural gas and oil aren't really suitable for baseline power production. Coal is. The, the, the thing to understand about power industry is that um, coal and gas, uh, sorry, oil and gas are actually expensive fuels to use for power generation. Uh, coal, because it burns for a long time and is quite cheap to extract from the ground, is a very, very good baseline power source. So initially, most like when the industrial age really took off, most electrical plants, electrical generation plants were actually coal-fired and still are to this day. I mean, coal is still the primary fuel source for most American power plants, for example. But if you want to go the renewables route, the only really useful renewable, to be honest, is hydrogen or, well, two of them. Uh, they are hydrogen and thermal power, geothermal. That's it. Solar and wind is nowhere near scalable enough. Uh, are nowhere near scalable enough, excuse me. It doesn't matter how many wind farms you put into the Netherlands with these bird chomping eco crucifixes or bird blasting um, reflective solar panels. It just doesn't matter. The problem is, well, there are lots of problems with this so-called green energy. One is that it's not very green to make. Uh, the, the amount of CO2 and uh, nasty stuff that goes into producing wind turbines and solar panels is tremendous. Then there's the issue of storing the generated power, which you can't do very easily. Then there's the issue of transmission, which you can't get past. It's a matter of physics. You can't actually transport electrons through cables easily enough to do uh, things efficiently at scale. Can't be done. And then there's the fact that, well, frankly, the sun doesn't come out enough and the wind doesn't blow hard enough for long enough in Europe to make wind and solar economically viable. I mean, I'm generalizing quite a bit, but that's, that's the basic reality of things. So the only answer is nuclear. But nobody in Europe is interested in investing in new nuclear reactors. I mean, France, to some extent, Germany is thinking, well, Germany has to keep its old nukes running, has to go back to burning coal. So the simple version of all of this is there is no alternative for Europe. And that's before you get to beyond just you know power generation, that's before you get to the issues of industrial production. Because I don't care what green morons think. You cannot get away from the use of fossil fuels. You can't. It's impossible. If you take a look, just you know, stand up and look around you at all the stuff surrounding you. Every single thing you see around you, every single one, was produced using some form of, of fossil fuel. If you were to get rid of all the fossil fuels in the world, you wouldn't just revert back to the Stone Age. You'd revert back to beyond the Stone Age to a time when essentially there were no tools. Like we'd have to start over from zero. It would be people living in mud huts sort of stuff. Never mind stones. They wouldn't even be able to have, they wouldn't have the knowledge at this point in time to figure out how to make stone axes. It's that bad. We're talking about not just the end of civilization, the end of humanity at that point. So will Europe survive or will you know Europe revert to uh, a stone age era? No, because there, there is of course oil and gas to be had. It's just at exorbitant prices. What will happen instead is the rapid deindustrialization of Europe. That's true. 
It's already happening. German manufacturers are already upping sticks and moving to the United States. It's already taking place. Uh, we've heard from, I think, Philips and Siemens in, uh, and BASF. They're all opening up plants in, in the U.S. because the cost of energy is just way lower there. Uh, and they have access to cheap, uninterrupted flows, well, relatively cheap, uninterrupted flows of energy and raw materials, which they don't have in Germany anymore. So until and unless Europe wises up and finally stops this suicidal course of antagonizing the Russians, uh, builds its own nuclear plants, whether using small modular, small modular reactors or big, you know, huge scale um, pressurized water reactor power plants, I don't know. Um, just as a, hopefully a brief aside, the, the problem with these big, huge nuclear power plants is that they're big and huge and that they, you have to refuel them one to two, every one to two years, the reactors themselves, which means you have to find a process for getting rid of the spent fuel, which is quite challenging. But the thing about nuclear power is it gets cheaper as you, uh, the bigger the plant you build, the cheaper the power that you generate. So it's very useful to have a big ass power plant. That's a fact. A small modular reactor is not going to generate the power that you need at that kind of scale. It's actually quite expensive to build an SMR uh, using current technology. And actually, SMRs are an unproven concept at this point. I mean, Rolls-Royce say they have a prototype. They've No, sorry, they, they don't. They haven't built one yet. They have a, they have a consortium of various people uh, working on building a small modular reactor. This is all public knowledge. I'm not telling anybody anything that isn't out there in the public domain um, beyond what I know, right? So... I've, I've done a little bit of research into this for various purposes, but Rolls-Royce uh, is part of a consortium of a bunch of different groups. Oh, I mean, they're the lead partner, but you know, they've got a lot of money behind them. Uh, but they haven't built one yet. I mean, they haven't had a first order yet. The only people, actually, who have a working prototype of anything that can be considered a small modular reactor are the Russians. The Akademik Lomasonov, Lomasonov I think, um, floating power plant somewhere in the Far East has two small 160 megawatt uh, of electricity generating uh, power plants which provide offshore power to a city somewhere you know, in, way off in the East. The only people who can do it are the Russians. It's just a fact. So Europe is a long way behind in this race. It's struggling to catch up. It's not willing to exploit its own actually quite abundant natural resources, but you know, it's not willing to exploit North, Shore, North Sea oil and gas. Uh, Norway is getting very rich off of its mineral deposits, but again, not, there's not enough of that in Norway to fuel the rest of Europe. The fact is Europe needs Russia, but ever since the United States blew up Nord Stream 1 uh, and severely damaged Nord Stream 2, as we now know, thanks to Seymour Hersh's article, <coughs> expose, I mean, anyone with two brain cells to rub together could have figured it out, but we now know it for basically a certainty. Um, yeah, Europe is screwed. I mean, Europe is going to revert back to a country of cottage and village industries, uh, good only for tourism. It's already happening. I mean, I was in Europe, uh, you know, last month. I was in Europe for uh, a little under a week. And I was like, 
okay, you know, nice ski slopes. What are you going to do with them? You've got, you've got nothing. You've got nothing else to offer. Europe has nothing. And it's, it's just so sad because it's such a, a great and powerful civilization reduced to nothingness by the, the warmongering actions of an imperial hegemon that just attacked its own ally. I mean, that's shocking to me. What, what truly shocks me is that Europeans aren't, you know, rampaging in the streets right now, um, d demanding the immediate expulsion of the United States embassies and consulates from their territory because it's just, it's so pathetic uh, that they, they aren't, you know, ordering Americans out of their military bases, telling them to go home because the Americans, well, specifically the American government, which does not represent Americans, attacked a NATO ally and declared war basically on Germany without declaring war, which is, it's staggering to me that a crime of this magnitude has not been punished. Uh, but it will be. It will be eventually, I'm sure. So, next question. Uh, what is the overall, uh, this is from WB. What is the overall, quote, boots on the ground economy like, really like in Britain now? So I can talk about this based on a number of factors. Uh, what I see, what I read. Uh, what I've experienced for myself from numerous visits to, to the UK over many years, um, I can say with a very great deal of confidence, uh, Britain is seriously screwed. There has never been, I, I if you listen to or watch Alexander Mercurius, he will, he will say this clearly, and I think he's right. There has never been in Britain the sense of existential despair there is now and today. It's, uh, Britain always figured out a way to overcome its problems. Not anymore. The problems facing Britain are so severe and so numerous, it's actually shocking. They can't work their way out of any of these. There is political sort of gridlock in Britain of a type and degree we've never seen before. The so-called conservative government does not represent British people at all. It just doesn't. You have an Indian in charge of Britain, which is hysterical to begin with. I mean, this just goes to show, you know, Vox Day's maxim. It, an imperial power will, that colonizes other countries will one day itself be colonized. And that's exactly what's happened to Britain. You walk around in, in British cities on British streets, and they're not British anymore. You walk through London. You go through Shoreditch or Marble Arch or uh, especially Shadwell. And it's like, this is not Britain. This is Pakistan. This is Bangladesh. This is, this is India. Uh, they all look like they're from the dirt world. They act like they're from the dirt world. The, the, the litter on the streets is awful. Then you have this issue of Brexit. Well, Rishi Sunak, the uh, so-called prime minister of Britain, just announced that he did a deal with Ursula von der Crazy, von der Luten from um, Brussels, from, you know, from the EU, which solves Brexit forever and cuts Britain away from the EU. No, it's, it's nonsense. It's a betrayal of Brexit. That much is very clear. It's a complete betrayal of Brexit. It subordinates British law to EU law and does not remove Britain from the common from the European common market, which is what it was supposed to do and does not give Britain the ability to make its own free trade agreements with European powers. Um, all of this is before you get to the fact that we now have the third conservative government in power, 
uh, in the last two years, in the last year really, um, which was unelected. It, Sunak's government was never elected. It was elected by the members of the Conservative Party, of which there are only you know relatively few, but it was not elected by the people. It does not represent the British people and never has. The alternative right now is the Labour Party, which is even worse. I mean, as bad as the Conservatives are, the Labour Party would be 10 times worse because they are completely owned by metropolitan elites and left-wingers, globalists, not by actual, like, true left-wingers, but by globalist neoliberals and neocons. That's who own the Labour Party in Britain. Liberal Democrats are completely irrelevant. They don't even count. Nobody cares. So... If an election were held today in Britain, Labour would win a colossal majority, which of course Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, who has all the, as I've seen, uh, as I've seen him describe, all the charisma of wet concrete, and I agree with that, uh, would destroy his party for a generation simply by being who he is. I mean, he's he's hopeless. Uh, there is no sense in Britain of any kind of way forward, no hope for the future, because no one represents British people. No one represents their interests. No one is willing to say stop to all of the immigrants swamping British shores. No one is willing to say we need to secure the borders. No one is willing to say we need to chart our own independent economic course. We need to start making things here in Britain again. We need to stop with our pretenses of sending our Navy overseas to pretend like we can act like the Americans. We can, we need to rebuild our manufacturing base. We need to bring back high paying jobs to Britain. We need to stop outsourcing everything. There's nobody to restore that sense of confidence and pride in Britain. The United Kingdom is truly broken. And you see that reflected in what's going on in Britain today, where there are vegetable shortages uh, due to sky-high energy prices. Why are energy prices so high? Because the British conservative so-called government has been shutting down power plants, going all in on the green agendas. You know, there's a mandate to go basically net zero by 2050 with all new cars in Britain being electric by, I think, 2030. These are insane mandates. Insane. But that's what the British so-called conservative government wants. It's ridiculous, but this is, you know, this is what the Tory party stands for. It stands for eco-fascism. Um, so there's no sense of any possible solution because there is no solution. There is just, you, you can't solve these problems. It can't be done. Uh, that's why you see these vegetable shortages. That's why you see these egg shortages, potato shortages, shortages of, of lots of different things, supply chains breaking down, uh, and a real sense of genuine despair in Britain, I would say. It's a, it's a very, very serious, very severe problem at this time. Uh, one other thing I would add with respect to this question about the current state of the United Kingdom. Uh, basically, <clears throat> all of the most hallowed kind of institutions of Britain are fundamentally broken. Um, the NHS, which is their proudest achievement, which I think is pathetic because it is socialized healthcare, is useless. Uh, I mean, if you want to go see a doctor, you have to make an appointment on the phone to go, you know, meet a GP, which is ridiculous. Uh, if you 
need surgery, the waiting lists are months long. I mean, in some cases a year long or more for critical care surgery. I mean, we're talking cancer, hip replacements, uh, knee replacements, um, serious corrective surgeries of various kinds. The, the backlog is, is hundreds of thousands of people long and there's no sense of anyone kind of doing anything to tackle it. Uh, this is why the private medical insurance market in the United Kingdom is booming. I know this for a fact uh, because I've done some studies into it. And while it's not anything like the, the private medical insurance market in the United States, uh, employers are now offering uh, insurance cover for their employees as an incentive to sign on to their firms. And they have to because the NHS is just so useless. The British military is breaking down before our eyes. They are not capable of fulfilling their primary mission. Um, the British Army, you could fit the entirety of the active duty British Army into a stadium, into Wembley Arena or O2 Arena, whatever the hell it's called these days. And uh, not the reserves because there are, uh, there are quite a substantial number of uh, territorial army as they're called reserves but if you add up the royal the british army the royal navy the royal air force the royal marines who are actually part of the royal navy uh, the total number is probably 120 to 150,000 if to defend an island of 60 million 67 million something like that uh, which is actually more than enough given the size of of the united kingdom but it's nowhere enough to nowhere near enough to do the force projection that the Brits want and nor should it be enough because the Brits can't feel the supercarrier, actually not even the supercarrier, an aircraft carrier to save their butts. Uh, Prince of Wales has been laid up in dry dock repeatedly every time they send it out it breaks down, they send it back in, it goes in broken, they because it, it comes out broken, they break something else, it goes in more broken, that's kind of the the procedure with with uh, with the Prince of Wales, and uh, yeah, they, 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 don't, they don't have enough F-35s. And why would you want F-35s? But they don't even have enough F-35s to provide seats for the pilots who are supposed to be flying them in the first place, which is, it's, it's just, it's every single institution, if you run down the list, immigration, military, police, uh, justice, uh, government, civil service, every single one is broken in Britain and there is no hope of fixing it. The, the, the country is in the most hopeless state I've ever seen it in the more than 20 years, yeah, uh, well, almost 20 years, that I have been visiting it, living in it, and working with people from it. So it's a very sad situation. All right, moving along. <clears throat> from GW from the Telegram chat. Uh, given that China is one of the biggest holders of U.S. Treasury bonds and dollars, how much influence does that give them over the U.S. economy and government? What happens to China's holdings if there is a war between two countries? Okay, I'll answer the second one first because the data tell us pretty clearly. Um, the Chinese are already reducing their holdings of Treasury bonds. So they, they were, at, I think, at one point, I think it was something like tr close to $3 trillion of U.S. debt, that's gone down to about $1 trillion now and is steadily declining. 
the the Chinese recognize full well the United States uh, debt bubble is a massive <clears throat> a massive threat to them. Uh, China understands and recognizes that much of its prosperity depends on the Americans buying cheap stuff from China and China exporting cheap stuff to the United States. And the way they keep that trade flow going is by holding uh, treasury bonds and notes in their foreign exchange reserves because it allows them to hold the yuan at a favorable rate against the dollar. I won't go deep into the mechanics of uh, foreign exchange uh, dynamics here, but essentially <clears throat> to maintain the yuan against the dollar, they buy uh, treasuries and sell yuan uh, to make the yuan cheaper and the, you know, the, the, the dollar more expensive, effectively. Um, so that, you know, by selling yuan, they, they raise their own uh, uh, or they lower their own domestic interest rates, uh, basically. Yeah. So essentially, it, it is a currency manipulation tactic. There's no question. In the event of a war between the U.S. and China, well, a lot of things will change very quickly. Um, for one thing, in the early stages of that war, which the United States will lose, let's be very clear about this, the United States will lose any war against China because the United States has lost decisively the, uh, the, the, the new arms race. It won the original arms race against the Soviet Union back in the day. It has decisively lost the new modern arms race that started in 2002 when the United States pulled out of the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. And that governed the kinds of weapons that the parties could use to target and destroy ballistic missiles. So it was essentially a governance tool over um, missile defense. The Russians have since developed hypersonic missile systems and, uh, you know, kind of tools and technologies to counteract not just ballistic missiles, but other types of cruise missiles. And that's why they have the most advanced air defense in the world. But the Chinese are, ha have also invested heavily in that area. So the Chinese have a, a network of a system of systems designed specifically to kill U.S. carriers that come anywhere near the South China Sea in the event of a war. The one thing they don't have is a good submarine fleet, but they will be able to destroy any American carrier that, that comes anywhere close. So the Americans will lose that war. There's no doubt or question about that. <coughs> and a recent set of Pentagon exercises made that very clear. Uh, they basically said every time the U.S. goes up against China, we get our asses handed to us. There's a, a Pentagon paper that came out on the subject. Uh, how much influence, uh, well, what happens in the event of that war? Well, in the early stages, the yuan will crash, yes, because people will flee to the U.S. dollar and the U.S. treasuries, so their bond yields will spike. Uh, the yuan will crash, at least in theory. But then it will become very clear that the United States is losing and a lot of people are going to be in complete panic at that point. And they're going to be looking for some way out of the dollar because once, once the U.S. Uh, hegemony over the Pacific crumbles, everyone else is going to start looking around going, why the hell are we looking to these people for protection when they can't even defeat China? And they're going to be looking for alternatives. They're going to be looking for other places to park their money. So at that point, uh, 
the United States is going to be kind of screwed. And I don't know what's going to happen. It's very unpredictable at that point because then you're looking at, at potentially the collapse of the U.S. dollar. The problem is there is nothing else to replace it. The reason why the U.S. dollar is the mainstay currency of the entire world is because in large measure of U.S. debt. The, the debt burden of the United States is enormous, you know, 30 plus trillion dollars. But there are willing buyers for that debt. <clears throat> and to buy that debt, you know, you, you buy it, you provide your currency back, but you, you are, you're effectively holding U.S. dollars. There is no other equivalent source of liquidity or funding anywhere else in the world. You can't find that level of debt anywhere to backstop anything or to facilitate a currency transfer or to use as collateral doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. There's nothing else out there. And this is, this is one of the fundamental factors that allows the United States to maintain dollar hegemony. And that's not going away anytime soon. Even if the U.S. goes to war with China, which I fully expect it will over the next 10 years, and loses that war, the U.S. dollar isn't going away as a currency. It's going to, it's going to remain a mainstay of international trade and commerce, but the loss in that war will accelerate the move away from the dollar to something else. The problem is there is nothing else with the scale and the volume and the reach of the dollar to act as a substitute. There is simply nothing else out there. Uh, how much influence does this holding of debt give over the U.S. economy? Not as much as um, <clears throat> one might think, actually. It, does, it, it did give substantial influence at one point uh, because the Chinese were able to kind of use that, that their holdings of dollarized debt to influence and to kind of peddle influence and buy influence among Americans, uh, particularly American politicians. But that's being reduced now because the Chinese leadership fully recognizes the U.S. is not a sane actor. The, the, the political leadership in the United States, is they, they understand and recognize, is made up of utter imbeciles and lunatics. And the Chinese aren't interested in dealing with that. Uh, just today, I think, <clears throat> Vox Day wrote a very good piece on his site about how the Chinese are, in their own way, looking to restore the mandate of heaven. And they have kind of very politely, in a very Chinese way, essentially said, uh, F this stuff, we're going to take steps to insulate ourselves from these crazies. Now, I don't like China. I don't trust China. I don't like their way of doing things. I don't uh, want to live under their system. But they are observably more rational, more sensible, and more restrained than the United States has been for the last 30 years. There's no doubt of that. I mean, you just have to observe their actions. And you can tell immediately that while, yes, the Chinese break their word and they, they do things that they promise they never do, they're a lot less bad than the United States is. They're not Christians, but they are observably more dedicated to their, their race and their people and their culture than the American leadership is. So I don't think we need to necessarily be afraid of China. We just don't have to trust them very much, nor should we. I uh, hope I answered that question. Uh, ne next one from Dan. He's got, uh, he actually asked a couple of questions. So 
Uh, first one from Dan from the Telegram chat. How will the American deep state react when it becomes apparent that Ukraine has lost and lost badly? Do you think they pretend it didn't happen, pivot to China or escalate with Russia? Uh, the last one, they are going to escalate. There's no question of that. I am recording this on the day that Bakhmut in Ukraine is effectively, is, is getting closer and closer to being fully encircled. Uh, the Russian northern and southern pincers are closing right around uh, Artyomovsk and hundreds if not thousands of Ukrainians are dying every day and there is a very clear recognition, however belated in the Western mainstream media, that Bakhmut is lost. Uh, <clears throat> there is a lot of press out there about how the, you know, the average survival span for new recruits going into Bakhmut is like four hours. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. Uh, it's probably worse than that, actually. And there is a, a dawning recognition that uh, the Ukrainians cannot hold this, this center. So they're, they're trying to, the Western media are frantically trying to spin this saying, well, Bakhmut isn't really strategically important. That's bullshit. It's very important. And that this is the time for the United States to step in and provide Ukraine with everything it needs, with more tanks, more missiles, more fighter jets, more of, more of everything. Uh, the neo-clowns have absolutely no reverse gear. They will not accept defeat. They will not tolerate the idea that they were wrong, and they will continue to double and triple and quadruple down. So once Bakhmut falls, and it becomes really obvious that Ukraine has lost an enormous amount of resources and men in this one area and has been forced to retreat to the Slavyansk-Kramatorsk uh, line. What are the neo-clowns going to do? They're going to say, well, we need to sanction Russia ever harder. We need to cut off more banks from SWIFT. They're already doing it. I mean, they've, they've cut off uh, Tinkoff and uh, uh, Alpha Bank and a few others from SWIFT, uh, which is a huge problem. But not an insurmountable one because you can still get around that by sending money to Russia through other means. Uh, I won't elaborate on those, but you can. Uh, <clears throat> they, they, they are still looking to send yet more aid to Ukraine, yet more money and funding. The neoclans will not accept that they are losing. They are trying to... The, the thing is, you have to understand, they're trying to destroy Russia so that the, because the neoclans for all their stupidity and their, their amazing ignorance of history and tactics and strategy, despite being mainly historians themselves, they are amazingly ignorant of history. Um, despite that, they still have sense enough to understand you cannot fight China, which is the world's preeminent manufacturing power, without first taking out Russia, which is the world's preeminent resource power commodities power because China can outproduce the United States and Europe combined easily. Russia can supply the energy that allows China to manufacture these things. Where the neoclans have made a very, very big mistake is in assuming that Russia's economy is tiny, that it's only the size of Italy's, that it's just a gas station masquerading as a country, that it's only the size of Australia's, or it's only the size of Texas. This is nonsense. And Martyanov keeps going on and on and on about this, and he's absolutely right. If you compare the Russian and Chinese economies, the Chinese have scale. They really do. 
they are able to manufacture at rates no one has ever seen before. But they don't have independence. Russia does. If you look at the Sukhoi Superjet or the MS-21 uh, wide-body, medium-range passenger airliners, these are 100% essentially Russian-made jets. The Chinese, for all of their technical achievements, for all of their manufacturing brilliance, cannot do this. They don't have the ability to make their own 100% domestic airliner. And when you actually sit down and you think about how difficult it is to make an airliner, if you just think about how difficult it is to make an aircraft engine, and then you extend that to how difficult it is to make an airliner, then you begin to comprehend the sheer scale and depth and power of the Russian industrial economy. And people like me who've lived in Russia and have seen a little bit of this, even we are surprised and astonished at how powerful Russia's industrial bench strength really is. So the neo-clowns massively miscalculated and their pivot to China is not going to work. And they know it, actually. They know it's not going to work. Uh, next question from Dan. Assuming things ever calm down and a European or American can visit Russia, what is your advice? I assume St. Petersburg should be the priority. Are Russians friendly, at least compared to the French? Uh, excellent set of questions. An American, or Russian can, uh, an American or European can visit Russia right now. It's not hard. Uh, all you have to do is apply for a visa. And actually, the Russians are making it easier. There were plans, I think, uh, to, reduce, <clears throat> to reduce the requirements for an e-visa so that you could stay for more than a week and you could visit more than just one city. So there's like an e-visa regime, which was suspended during the COVID times, uh, during the scandemic, where you could apply for an e-visa and it was very quick, and, but you could only visit that one city. And it was only for like 7 or 14 days. I forget uh, how long exactly. There were plans at the sort of the, I think, April, May time of last year where they said, we're going to extend this and we welcome Europeans to come in and visit Russia and travel around the country. We welcome you. you know, take a look at our beautiful country and see it for yourselves. That's still there. If you apply for a Russian visa today, then you have to go through the formal process so you can get a one single visit visa or a, um, you know, adnokratnaya uh, visa, uh, visa. Well, uh, so you can get a tourist, visa, tourist visa, or business, um, business uh, That's not quite right. Um, visa для бизнеса. I mean, I'm butchering the terms, but you can get a business visa. The business visa. It's not actually a business visa. It's just their term for a long-term multiple entry visa. <coughs> but you can apply for one of those right now. And I highly recommend you do. The difficulty is um, twofold. The difficulties are actually, there are several of them. It is possible to visit Russia, but you have to go through one of three different routes. There used to be direct flights from New York to Moscow uh, or London to Moscow, um, and, and there were like multiple flights a day. Those are all gone. Booking an airline ticket is a pain in the ass. So now you have to go via one of three destinations, either Dubai, Istanbul, or Belgrade. So you'll often find like Russians will go from Bel uh, from New York to Belgrade to 
um, Moscow uh, or London to Belgrade to Moscow or London to um, Dubai to Moscow or London to Istanbul, you know, so that means you have to pay extra for the ticket, which is really annoying. Then there's the issue of paying for stuff in Russia. You can't do that very easily because, of course, all foreign Visa, MasterCard, and Amex cards do not work in Russia anymore. You can get around these by carrying cash, but then there's a limit of $10,000 that you can bring in undeclared. So, you know, you have to declare anything over that amount, um, and you cannot take out, you're forbidden to take out more than $10,000 in cash in equivalent in rubles. Um, so either you land in Dubai or Belgrade and you convert everything to rubles and then you know you, you carry on to to, to Russia <clears throat> or you find some way of opening up a Russian bank account which is not that hard actually if you're staying long term in Moscow they basically need your name in Cyrillic with an ID form of some kind so if you have a Russian visa you can just give them your name and uh, in Cyrillic and you can easily buy a Russian SIM card for your phone um, and you'll, you'll be all set up. Uh, but it's, it's not straightforward. You need to have contacts on the ground who can help you out with all of this stuff. It's not easy. Uh, which city should you visit first? M my personal opinion, Moscow. Because Moscow has better weather than St. Petersburg. If you, if you go to St. Petersburg in summer, it's absolutely spectacular. It's wonderful. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, St. Petersburg has the best of both European and Russian architecture. I love St. Pete's. It's a magnificent city. Absolutely gorgeous, glorious, wonderful place. But if it were me, I would go to Moscow first because Moscow has that kind of combination of everything of great architecture, great food, uh, really great transport. The only problem is it's enormous, but you know, St. Pete's is not that much smaller. Um, I highly recommend visiting Russia if you can. Uh, are Russian people friendly? Well, yes. They're, they're some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. The, the way I think about Russians is they're very cold when you first meet them. Very cold. They, they seem very you know, sort of closed off. They don't smile much. They, um, there's a saying among, Ru uh, among Russians, smiech um, bez... <coughs> Hang on a second. Smiech bez... Ah, yeah. Smiech bez A smile without a reason, or laughter without a reason, is the sign of an idiot. Uh, loose translation. Smiech bez prichinej. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's, that's how Russians feel about it. If you, if, you just, if you just walk around with a big grin on your face, then they think you're a moron or, you know, like crazy. <laughs> But once you get to know them, they are the warmest, kindest, most welcoming, most decent people you ever meet. They're the least racist people I've ever met in my life. I mean, white people in general, I think, are the least racist I've ever met. Russians are like the least of the least racist. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you look like. As long as you are well-mannered, well-behaved, as long as you make some effort to speak their language, they will help you. I mean, they genuinely are just the most warm-hearted, big-hearted, kind people I've ever met in my life. I am extremely fond of Russians. Um, I, I really love their country. And uh, I, I have just lots and lots of good things to say about them. So 
Anyone who wants to visit Russia, go do it. It's a fantastic experience. It'll be a trip you'll never forget. And you'll come away from it knowing so much more about this this mysterious country, which is actually really not that scary at all. It just seems really scary, but it's not. It's really not. Um, James asks, somewhat unrelated to the SMO, although definitely part of the JWO agenda, are Russians dying from suddenly and unexpectedly, like so many young and otherwise healthy people are in the West? Is Sputnik the killer that Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, and AstraZeneca are? Uh, he's talking about the clot shots. So the, the simple answer is I don't know because it's very difficult to get clinical data out of Russia about Sputnik. Uh, when, when he says Sputnik, he's referring to Sputnik Piat, uh, Sputnik 5, the Gamelian Institute uh, vaccine against uh, COVID. And it's the only human-based adenovirus or human adenovirus-based vaccine on the market. Now, the data that I have heard or seen are very limited. So I don't know if this is the case. I do know that there is a very high degree of vaccine skepticism in Russia. They don't have much of an uptake. Uh, less than, I think, 30% of the population last time I checked was not vaxxed. And they don't have any plans to make it mandatory. They haven't made it mandatory. They never did. So the vaccine fervor has really died down in Russia. There never was much of it. People were very skeptical of it from the beginning. So my educated guess is that there is nowhere near this epidemic of people dying of suddenly <coughs> uh, in Russia or in any of the CIS countries, uh, Commonwealth of Independent States, former FSU, uh, former Soviet Union countries. Um, there isn't that prevalence of people dying from heart attacks, blood clots, strokes uh, at, at strange ages. I don't think it's there, but I don't have the data to back it up. So my best guess answer is no. Um, is it the killer? No, it's not. I, I think we can pretty definitively say that. And the reason we can definitively say it is because uh, while blood clotting was a side effect of Sputnik V, it was never on the scale of the AstraZeneca or J&J, certainly not the J&J vaccine. And the reason why was because it wasn't a... Uh, a foreign toxic agent like the mRNA clot shots were, uh, the, <clears throat> the, the Sputnik vaccine was actually based, was and is specifically based on a human adenovirus, not a genetically modified chimpanzee adenovirus the way the Oxford AstraZeneca shot is. And it's not based on mRNA technology the way, you know, uh, messenger uh, RNA technology the way the Pfizer and Moderna shots are, which, and those are genuinely very, very dangerous. So, uh, again, I don't have the hard numbers to back it up. I'm sorry, I just I haven't seen it. Um, and I don't think we ever will because, again, the uptake rates were so low. Uh, they, they were really genuinely very, very low for, for, um, for COVID shots. Okay, last question, assuming my voice holds out because I've been talking for well over an hour. Um, <clears throat> Uh, he's so dark, uh, is long time friend of the site, uh, lurker and uh, frequent reader. 
he's quoting me. So he says, go look up the history of Ukrainian nationalism and the abominable way in which the Ukrainians handled their own infrastructure and economic gifts left over from the USSR. And you will quickly realize that perhaps no country in history has ever squandered so much so quickly in the name of so little. Okay. Uh, and his question, so what you just heard was a quote from an article that I wrote. His question is, this is a topic of interest. Can you give me a starter pack? Sure. The Cliff Notes version is that if you look at Ukrainian economic development and industry up until the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine was basically the breadbasket of the USSR. And this is why, for example, there is such deep anger among Ukrainians at what Stalin did in the 1920s, well, 1920s and then the 1930s. Um, so in the early 1920s, the Ukrainians declared independence from Russia, broke away during the Russian Civil War. Uh, Lenin and Stalin brought them back under control, you know, like just destroyed the Ukrainian independence movement, slaughtered thousands, uh, if not hundreds of thousands, and pulled Ukraine back into the fold and instituted the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. So, you know, there's the USSR and the SSS. Uh, well, um, in Russian, it's very easy to distinguish. In English, not so much. In Russian, it would have been Soyuz Sovietskova Sovietskih Socialistichiskih Respublik. Yeah. Soyuz Sovietskih Socialistichiskih Respublik. Yeah. Um, in Ukraine, it would have been Ukrainskaya, uh, so Ukrainskaya, so, so, whatever. I mean, Ukrainskaya, uh, Sovietskaya, Socialistichskaya Respublika. So it would have been a proper USSR in in the broader. SSSR, as it was, uh, was a, a broader organization. Anyway, the after the 1920s, in the 1930s, in the late 1920s and the early 1930s, <clears throat> Stalin came and basically looted as part of his de-kulakization program, de, you know, collectivization, de-kulakization program, uh, came in and took all of the produce and the seed grain held by Ukrainian kulaks, kind of landowning farmers, and expropriated it and sent it to Russia. And that caused mass starvation in Ukraine. Um, the death toll has never been officially verified. It was anywhere between, you know, estimates ra range between 1 million and 10 million, um, with the consensus somewhere around 4 million dead. Uh, reports of cannibalism and uh, just really horrendous evil conducted, uh, committed during that time. Acts of just absolute barbarism and atrocity. It's, it's genuinely, truly horrifying, uh, some of the stuff that, that happened back then. And of course, um, the New York effing slimes completely covered it up with Walter Durante and his reporting at the time. Completely covered it up. But throughout, you know, after, after World War II, what the Russians called the Great Patriotic War, Ukraine 
was devastated. I mean, the, the Germans invaded Russia through Ukraine. So when the Germans arrived, the Ukrainians greeted them as liberators initially and opened their cities. And let's be honest, the women in many cases opened their legs for the German invaders. That's a fact. That's an actual fact. And yet, once the Germans came through and carried out their ethnic cleansings and enslaved, quite literally, hundreds of thousands or millions of Ukrainians to work as slave labor in their death camps and in their factories, uh, that began to change pretty quickly. But then, <clears throat> once the Soviets liberated and pushed back the German, uh, pushed, liberated Ukraine, pushed back the Germans and conquered uh, East Germany, the... Ukraine itself started to recover a lot of its importance in the Soviet Union. And the Russian end of Ukraine, so basically east of the Dnieper River, the, the east and the south of Ukraine, became very, very, very important industrial areas because that was where the um, Russians started, like where, where the Soviets actually invested tremendous resources in coal mining, gas mining, uh, shipbuilding and agriculture. So that whole very fertile belt uh, east of the Dnieper and that very rich, um, resource-rich belt east of the Dnieper were prime targets for Soviet kind of investment and uh, you know, um, infrastructure development, which is why the Donbass today is so heavily industrialized because that was the industrial heartland of the Soviet Union. Uh, the South in Kherson and Zaporozhye provinces were the agricultural, uh, among the agricultural heartlands of the Soviet Union. So the Soviets recognized the key strategic importance of this territory and really poured a lot of resources in developing it. That's why so many of the Soviet military industrial complex companies were located in Ukraine. That's why their aircraft carrier shipyards were located in Ukraine. So in Nikolaev, they had their aircraft carrier building facilities. In Kherson, they had their merchant shipping and uh, military shipbuilding. In Odessa, historically a very, very important Russian city, they had their port facilities facing the Black Sea. So, you know, this, this whole southern eastern stretch of Ukraine was very important and they really, really built it up. That's why today Donbass is so densely populated, uh, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of Ukraine, with so many cities and towns kind of networked in and around the Donbass area. But once you get west of the Dnieper, that sort of kind of disappears and it becomes very kind of empty stepland. Uh, with almost nothing out there. Uh, now, in the process of building up all this infrastructure, the Soviets did what they always did, which was to install massive amounts of redundancy in their power grids, in their power generation, in their uh, electricity, and put massive, huge factory complexes everywhere. That's where you get Azostal, that's where you get uh, the, you know, Yuzhmash and uh, other major plants in like Dnipropetrovsk, which was a very important industrial city. That's where you get the technical institutes of excellence like you have in Kharkov uh, with the Kharkov uh, National Aviation University. I know someone who graduated from there, actually. Um, 
That's where you get all the port facilities that they built in Kherson and so on. So there was a huge investment relative to the size of the uh, Ukraine's GDP. There was immense investment in these areas. The Russians, well, the Soviets did what they always do, which was to industrialize rapidly on a massive scale. When Ukraine gained its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, it immediately basically stopped funding these things because Ukraine was actually a net beneficiary or it was a net um, recipient of funds from the Soviet Union itself, from the central pot of money that the Soviets allocated for all of their projects and, and their uh, infrastructure and maintenance for their entire empire. So when that money disappeared, of course, the Ukrainians weren't about to fund it themselves. And they allowed a systematic looting of their country to take place, just as happened in Russia during the 90s. But the difference is they didn't have someone like Putin coming along to put a stop to it. So Ukraine truly suffered horribly during uh, the 90s, but that suffering never stopped. And that epic underinvestment in infrastructure and technology continued all the way through the present day. So what you see, therefore, is a legacy of industry and manufacturing fleeing Ukraine, leaving the country. And that's one of the reasons why Ukraine has such a massive uh, excess of energy. That's why Ukraine was, until fairly recently, an energy supplier to the rest of Europe. It would sell surplus electricity to the neighboring countries because it could afford to. It was one of the very few things Ukraine actually made that it could sell abroad. That's why Ukraine provided so much you know, oil and gas, because that's one of its few sources of revenues. It doesn't really have anything else to offer. Ukraine is entirely to blame for its own failures. It really did inherit the most astonishing infrastructure gifts from the Soviet Union, at the expense of the Russian people who assumed all of Ukraine's war debts and all of Ukraine's debt burden dating back to the time of the Tsars and paid all of it off. I mean, this is debt dating back to the First World War. The Russians paid it off for the entirety of the Soviet Union. So not just Ukraine, but also Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, you know, all the Ukstan countries, uh, all of the Warsaw Pact countries that were part of the USSR. Even the independent, even in many cases, some of the independent states uh, that maintained their nominal independence but were, you know, kind of part of the Warsaw Pact, Russia paid off their debts, including Ukraine's. So that's why I say, you know, that's why no, that's why I say, perhaps no country in history has ever squandered so much so quickly in the name of so little. Because what did the Ukrainians get back in return? Nothing. Uh, they became the poorest country pretty much in Eastern in, in all of Europe on a per capita GDP basis. They, they exported basically mail order brides and uh, increasing amounts of neo-Nazi bullshit to the rest of the world, uh, particularly to Europe, and criminality. I mean, that, that's, that's what Ukraine is known for these days. Uh, it's very sad. It's a very, very sad situation. You know, it could have been a great country. It could have been easily the rival of Germany in terms of its industrial potential and output. But look at what it is today. It's a broken, just destroyed shell of a country. And it has only itself to blame. I really just don't have any 
uh, good words to say about what the Ukrainians did to themselves. This is their fault. They, they never kind of established themselves and never regained their national pride and sovereignty. They never had somebody like Putin come in and throw the oligarchs out and reestablish their country as independent, sovereign, over itself, over its territory, its people. Even, you know, Belarus has done that with Lukashenko. That's Belarus had a lot of the same conditions and actually a lot less by way of gifts given to it by the Soviet Union. And look at Belarus today. Stable, free, well, free in the sense that it charts its own destiny. Belarus is actually a very much a police state. If you go there, it's a police state. I haven't been. I'd like to go, but I haven't been to Belarus. Uh, but the complete police state, the actual KGB, actual KGB is still there, called the KGB, and it reports directly to Lukashenko. Anyway, a long rambling answer, I know, but hopefully that provides some context and some... Uh, ideas as to where you can look. But if you, if you want to get an idea of just how much Ukraine had to offer, go look up the Kiev class uh, of aircraft carriers and the cancelled Ulyanovsk class of aircraft carriers. Go look up where uh, the Admiral Kuznetsov was built. Go look up uh, where uh, Antonov, the uh, aircraft manufacturer, was located. Go look up the production of the, the An-225 Mria, the, the dream. Uh, Mria, Mria was destroyed. It's heartbreaking to look at the photos. Absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, Mria was destroyed during the attacks on Gostomel Airport at the beginning of the SMO. Go look up what it took to build the Antonov-225 and the Antonov-125. Uh, go look up... <clears throat> Kherson's shipyards, go look up Zaporozhye nuclear power plants and the other nuclear power plants around Ukraine. Look up the size and scope of these things. Look up um, the volume of oil and gas that used to flow through. Like if you look at a map of you know the, the oil and gas transit pipelines through Ukraine to Europe, you get some idea of the size and scale of the industrial investment made by the Soviets into Ukraine. Uh, go look up the the production capacity of Ukraine in crops, and you'll quickly realize just how much Ukraine could produce on its own to feed the entirety of Europe and the Soviet Union. Not by itself, but contribute a substantial amount. And the number of crops that they could get out of the Chernozemlya, uh, uh, the, the black soil. So all of this stuff existed in Ukraine, and they threw it all away. And uh, what can I say? It's uh, just an, an absolute and utter terrible tragedy. Uh, okay, well, I've run on for quite a while. Hopefully that answered everybody's questions. Uh, look, I'm going to go and do something else because my voice is basically about to give out and um, this, this damn bug is not going anywhere. But I hope you enjoyed this uh, set of questions from the readers, from the subscribers. Uh, I hope I can do another Ask Didact Anything sometime soon. Um, hopefully I'll take less than two weeks to answer it next time or you know, close to a month in some cases. I'm Again, I'm really sorry about that. I've just been super busy and quite sick. 
So uh, hope you'll forgive me, but thank you as always for your time, for your patience. And uh, please, as always, feel free to like, share, comment, and especially subscribe to the site, to the podcast. Make sure you never, ever miss another episode. And I will catch you next time. Uh, Strength and honor, brothers. This is Didact, over and out.